Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. We're your hosts. My name is Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Please subscribe to this podcast for future episodes. Drew, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm doing well. I'm excited to start episode three of the Arrangers podcast. Me too. Me too. It's it's great to be back, and it's uh, wonderful to be doing another episode with you, as always. So, Drew, you just got back from China two days ago? Yes. Yes. It's I'm still definitely jet-lagged, but uh, it, it's good to be back here. It was a very crazy trip and I can't even begin to tell you how much I learned and uh, how, mu- how much uh, I enjoyed learning about the Chinese opera and uh, all of its many different manifestations. Excellent. Well, and I'm excited to, to talk about our topic today, which I think you were mentioning earlier that it'll have some application from, from the music that you were working on during your trip. But uh, today's topic is, is something that really does apply to all of us as writers and really as, as musicians in general. But the topic of writing too much music or writing too little music in your composition or arrangement, it's such a difficult balance, I think, to maintain, but it's definitely worthy of discussion. Definitely. It's easy. We all have different personalities and, and different uh, just bends in our quirks and style and and how we express ourselves musically and so some of us overwrite some of us underwrite some of us uh are just gifted and we do the perfect amount of writing all the time which i am certainly not so (laughs) uh and so it's and it also depends on the situation you know um how much you know uh a lot of different situations will Put you in a situ- uh, will put you as a writer in a place where it's easy to overwrite or easy to underwrite. So it's a great topic to discuss today. Absolutely. So Drew, you and I were, were kind of mentioning that we almost we have opposite tendencies as uh, as writers. Which I was mentioning that that uh, traditionally I view myself as somewhat of a of an underwriter. I, I tend to maybe sometimes feel like I could be writing a little bit more detail into my compositions at first. And you were mentioning that you, you feel that you often uh, are more of an overwriter as, as far as definitely. Your, your tendency. So Most definitely. So that's interesting. I mean, I wonder if it, if it has something to do with personality or, or if it's more of a musical taste or just kind of a combination of all of the above. But I think when you're talking about you know, having a musical personality like we were talking about last episode. I mean, I think it all comes through your your music on some level. Right, right, definitely. I, personality has a lot to do with it and, and what music you listen to growing up, you know, and, and you know, different genres are, of music have different levels of busyness in them. And what I, what I definitely want to spend a minute talking about is the, the Chinese opera that I've had a a pleasure to be really checking out and listening to for the last two months. It's a very busy music. Um, even though there's not multiple lines, it's it's not polyphonic at all. It's it's monophonic. It's in fact it's what they call heterophonic, 
wow. which is a uh, it's basically monophony, but little variations in the lines that everyone either improvises ornaments or um, or just straight up diverts from the line. But most of the time, it's unison. That being said, there's not a whole bunch of whole notes in this music. For the most huh. part, it is eighth note and sixteenth note driven. And that, that's how the beat is kept, how the pulse is kept, because everyone's playing in unison. So it's a very busy music. And so when it was my job to combine this with jazz, the first couple tunes, I know I definitely overwrote, because in jazz, you, a lot of the jazz melodies that we're used to hearing have a lot of space, particularly standards, you know? Lots of whole rests or whole notes on the fourth and eighth bars of phrases, mm-hmm. um, lots of space for counterlines to flourish and live in. <laughs> uh-huh. And and with this much activity going on, I, I, I overwrote the, the first couple pieces because I was just used to having more space to put things in. And so by the end of it, I was starting to get the knack of it because the Chinese melodies occupy so much musical and melodic real estate that there wasn't a whole lot for me to put around it, which is okay. But that's definitely, you know, if you came up with that style, Chinese opera or another busy style of music, like bebop, for example. Bebop can be a very busy style, very eighth note driven, very fast. It's, you know, if you're going to arrange a bebop melody, there's not going to be a whole lot of room for fast moving counter lines, you know. Because the bass and the drums and the melody are are already playing quarter, most of the quarters and eighths. Uh-huh. So how your personality develops uh, depends on the, a lot, I think, the music that you listen to growing up. Yeah, I would be inclined to agree. And what you were given with your recent job in China was a very constrained set of parameters and very much like a situation that dictated a lot of what you had to do, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I... You know, I was given the parameters that we were going to use Chinese musicians and singers who had never played anything other than Chinese opera. And so knowing that, I knew I had to write for them in a way that they were comfortable because to ask them to try to swing or, <laughs> uh, or, or do extended techniques on their instruments, I, I personally think would have been a mistake because, because of the limited rehearsal time and just the the nature of the the commercial nature of the music that my client was hoping to produce, it wouldn't have lended itself well to this. So uh-huh. uh, those were my parameters, and so I had to work within those. Fascinating. Well, as arrangers that work, you know, as collaborators with other musicians, we're often put into those situations where we we really do have a lot of parameters that limit what we can do in some way or another, and. That's a great example of that. And, you know, another example would be some of the situations that I've, ha- I've been put in is where you, I have to arrange a piece for, for someone and it's being played by a group that maybe uh, is a high school band or, or, uh, or something mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. where they're not, they're not going to be at a professional level and you have to limit the complexity of the writing um, in order to uh, accommodate that. And so... The challenge with that would be not overwriting where the musicians can't handle all of the material there, but not underwriting. Yeah, absolutely. And that's and that's hard when you have to kind of work within constraints. Mm-hmm. Like for example, 
if you have a top level big band or, or a top level orchestra or a top level and you name it any kind of group playing your music then as an arranger or a composer you're just like in heaven you're like i can write pretty much whatever i want i mean yeah you want a level of pragmatism within that but but you have so many choices if you're you know if you have a brass section that can handle the high register really well and if you have musicians that can handle technically complex music mm-hmm. it's so much easier to go straight from the music that's in your head to the music that's on the page. Right. But the reality is we usually have constrictions of some kind. Even with professional-level bands, they're probably going to have at least an element of time constraints with rehearsal and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So this this is a very pragmatic topic in, in a lot of ways because... Exactly. I mean, in, in my eyes, like, you... You want to nail the gig, right? You you always want to nail the gig that you're given, and that's going to be different depending on what the gig is. But certain gigs, it may feel like, gosh, I'm just not writing anything into this chart. Like, this has to be underwriting, <laughs> right? Right. Like, I'm getting paid for this, right? <laughs> they, I'm getting paid to write nothing. <laughs> and Right. Slashes. And, it takes so much confidence to just recognize that that's what the the gig needs and to to just do that you know it's it's to me it's in a lot of ways harder to you know write minimally than it is to write well let's let's just call it maximally absolutely and and i think maybe we should change the topic because it sounds like we're we're fitting into the writing for who's Writing for your performers maybe is the topic of this right now, but an, an underwriting and overwriting is the main subheading, of course. But like, you know, writing for your performers, and that's that's one of the best things we can do. You know, uh, when you have no limits, you can do whatever you want. But sometimes limits are a good thing because then they force you into musical choices, which allow you to have the work performed. <laughs> You know, when you have that limited time of rehearsal, you know that you have to write in a particular way. And so that being said, sometimes, uh, obviously underwriting, it takes a lot of confidence in the musicians. And so when you're writing for an elementary school group or a, uh, a young middle school group, sometimes it's better to not necessarily overwrite, but write enough music in the parts so that you don't have to rely on one section. You know, it's better, instead of giving it, making it a clarinet solo, what if they don't have a good clarinet soloist? You know, then making it a clarinet section and flutes together, you know? Like, uh, that way, the, the weaknesses of one section will balance with the strengths of another section, and the, the blended sound can come across really nicely. And so... In some cases, that might be overwriting, but in this case, it's a good amount of uh, you're you're helping support the ensemble through different scenarios, you know. Or if you if you have time for it, per- perhaps the best thing to say, if you really want a clarinet solo, say solo optional solely with clarinets. You know, maybe that's the best thing to say in that particular scenario. But yeah, it, overwriting and underwriting, it really depends on the music you're writing, and the performers you're writing for. You're right. I mean, it really does come down to the intention with which you're writing. Like you said, if you're writing for a beginning-level band, 
then your intention is to make a piece that's playable by a wide range of these younger students and give them the option to feature a soloist if they have it, but to have it so that the band director is flexible with that. Right. Whereas if if you get commissioned by, let's just say you get commissioned by like a top band, like the Airmen of Note or something. Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> well, then your your whole thing is to write for that particular group. Or let's say... Let's say you're working with a solo artist. Maybe they're a singer. Maybe they're a, a horn player. Maybe they're maybe they're a band mm-hmm. or whatever. And they they have a composition that they wrote, more of a small group or or something like that composition. And your job is to to arrange it out for a bigger group. Let's say a big band or an orchestra. And mm-hmm. that to me is where I start to underwrite actually because um, usually. And this is this is why I said I'm classically sort of an underwriting musician because when I get a, an assignment from a musician, like my biggest fear is that I'm gonna take the song away from where they want it to go, and mm. that's why I usually start on the side of underwriting. And I've had situations where I've done that, and I've and they've been like, "Man, you can feel free to write way more. Like you can you can have more freedom with this," and that way. Mm. I don't get into, not necessarily get into trouble with it, but I have to adjust my course after getting their feedback. So, you know, so it's, it's a very tricky balance. Uh, or there have been times on the flip side where I've given something to someone and they've, they've said like, no, I'm really thinking of the, this as more of like a backup role. Right. And I have to scale back a little bit. So I think the key, again, I mean, what we're talking about here is hitting the nail on the head with whatever the the particular situation is. Right, exactly. And and sometimes, like for me, I'm I'm very much classically an overwriter. I I always want to fill in, you know, the lots of ink on the page. You know, uh-huh. uh, you know, it's it's hard to trust whole notes sometimes, even though whole notes are beautiful, mm-hmm. and uh, and some of the and and just letting a harmony ring. I'm starting to finally learn how to just let a voicing speak for itself and and become enamored with the timbre and the the structure of a of a sound and letting it linger. But it's it's uh, like I was saying with this China China project, uh, Chinese opera project. The 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 melodies are so busy, and I wanted to you know fill every hole with a either a fill or a counterline or a, a some you know something that would just take the they take the attention away for just a moment when in reality what i realized sometimes it's okay to add to that even if it's simple you know just uh just a whole note in the i the instrumentation i was dealing with was a jazz sextet to uh, trumpet two saxes and a rhythm section with a couple uh, chinese instruments and a vocalist and they the chinese instruments would always be playing the same thing in unison and then sometimes just to add a whole note in the higher register of the alto and the trumpet, just bringing in a pedal tone or, or a drone tone in the upper register would would be a lot more impressive and expressive than writing a, a whole counterline against it, you know? Sure. Um, and so listening is always the best way to determine whether you're underwriting or overwriting. Looking at the score, I mean, sometimes you can see it because there's just so much happening. But uh, listening is always the best way to determine if it needs more or less because you'll feel it if you have a if you have a strong ear and you'll feel like oh you know what 
there's just too much going on. It's getting in the way of the melody, or it's getting in the way of the intent. This is supposed to be a calming section. There's too much going on. This is not calm, you know? Yeah. And so that's my, uh, that was, that was my big takeaway for, for this particular project. Also on a, on a number of other big band tunes that I've had a pleasure of doing, uh, you know, it's been easy to overwrite and I'm always reminded of Sammy Nestico's quote, uh, it's, uh, you know, no matter how much I go back and write, it's uh, the, the, the eraser is my favorite tool, you know? And and so just to, and maybe that's a good, maybe it's okay to be an overwriter because then you can always go back and edit and erase because editing is, is just so important. Oh, do you really need all these eighth notes? Is that going to limit the performance? Is that good for the musical intention? You know, these kind of things. There's uh, some of the, most beautiful songs have very simple elements to them and there's something pleasing about uh symmetry and and simplicity so how does how does that fit into the overwriting and underwriting theme it 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 depends (laughs) absolutely well i mean i like to to go back to some of the classic you know albums and classic recordings and and arrangements to kind of yeah. Use them as inspiration, and and one example that I've gone back to time and time again is if you listen to this podcast, you'll probably hear me talking about Gil Evans like over and over again. Um, I just really <laughs> like I really like the way he he approaches music, and and uh, mm-hmm. all all of his music with the Miles Davis features. I mean, when you study that music, you start to to realize that the choices he's making are more in terms of the sonic vibe than it is about maybe uh adding original material like Hmm. to me when i when i listen to the album miles ahead where he does all these arrangements of of other tunes a lot of it really doesn't add that much to the original composition like he does uh dave brubeck's tune the duke and right when i first heard it i thought that it was a lot of his own arranging and, and some of it is some of it is but a lot of the like the bass line and, and and the harmonies, a lot of that was sort of built into the original uh, tune, anyways. And right. So like he's using dynamics and he's using different voicings and he's using instrument choices and form choices where he'll open up certain sections of the form for improvisation. But it really the choices are very much just using simple simple elements, and to me it just has a vibe to it that's. Like, it's perfect. Like, he's not... Like, these aren't, you know, Gil Evans rearranging tunes that are already written. Like, he's really just taking the tunes and he's just putting a a, a different vibe to them. And, and it's like this atmospheric effect. Like, you listen to his music and there's always this atmosphere to it that is so unique to him. And, and I, I just think... I mean, how do you put that into words? <laughs> you know? Man, yeah, well, it's... Yeah, at a certain point, you start dancing about architecture, you know? Certainly. But I think you're right. Yeah, he's not doing these mega creative recompositions, reimaginations of these tunes. Uh, sometimes he is. Uh, other times he's definitely not. And the Duke is... It, I think he even he even strips it down. You On the head of that tune, on the original Brubeck version, does he play... Brubeck usually plays the chords, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if I recall correctly on the Gil Evans version, 
there he doesn't have any piano on on the right. head on the a sections right i don't so think so yeah it's just the bass the trumpet and i think he harmonizes it like in a fourth with another instrument yeah I'm, he's got I'm like a a lower harmony uh, i'm not sure what the harmony is specifically is but it's yeah it's very simple yeah yeah it's and yeah so he strips it down to its basic elements again right. more, being more simple and you know maybe that that vibe you were talking about it's like he's filtering it filtering it through his own personal aesthetic of course as always which is unes- inescapable for all of us but also he's he's filtering it through the Miles Davis, you know, approach, you know, letting letting his sound, orchestrating it and arranging it in such a way that will really feature Miles and bring the attention on him and his, and his, you know, his phrasing, which is, you know, he was a great melody maker and a great trumpet player, but I think everyone will agree that his phrasing was some of the best in that's ever been, you know, part of an improviser's vocabulary. His phrasing was some of the best. I don't think the first thing that jumps into your mind when you think of Miles Davis is, like, sheer technical virtuosity. I mean, not that he didn't have a technical, you know... No, he, he, he could play the horn really well in a way. He, you know, he was intentional in, in a lot of those yeah. sounds and things that he was making. Um, but, uh, you know, his, his choice to leave out stuff was leave out notes excuse me was uh unparalleled in in so many regards and and as writers it does take a lot of courage to to leave things out in a similar manner like so drew you and i both got uh, a cool opportunity that our our mentor rich uh de rosa gave us to arrange a tune for one of his friends marlene verplank uh great vocalist oh yes and uh yeah and that was really really cool i mean in, it was a, a great little opportunity to to work with a client and while we were still in school and, and kind of get a little i i would think of these opportunities like as the equivalent of an internship you know um for for musicians absolutely and so we we got to work with her on these charts and uh my tune was a very simple thing and it was sort of a bassy vibe to it. And I just remember like the very first A section, I just wanted so badly to put something in there. Like I wanted to write something. Right. But there's a vocalist, like it doesn't need horns on every section. Like it doesn't, but there was a part of me that just felt like, what if this is the wrong decision to leave a section just rhythm section and just let it groove for a while. Right. Because I was so insecure about this choice to like leave it bare. And uh, in the end, I, I ended up leaving the first A section, just rhythm section. And then I had, uh, you know, a little, maybe a little horn interjection at the end of it. And it worked great. I remember that arrangement. I remember Alyssa singing it on your recital. Yeah. And it was great. Right. It just, uh, it, I don't think it's formulaic, but it's certainly been used that way before the first day is very and sometimes the second day too is often left wide open you know rests for all the horns yep and it works great because it's like the saying telling the audience hey this is where we're going to be for this tune mm-hmm. just get into it and we'll add the icing and and some some colors later here's our here's our batter here's our cake you know? Yeah, and that's I mean, and that's a whole another part of the the crafting process that goes on is, 
you're you're also not it's not just that you're being lazy and leaving out parts you're like actually what do you call it uh you're creating terraces so that it one section starts soft the next section builds up another part the next sec and you have these dynamic ups and downs that happen throughout the piece because you're choosing to leave certain sections bare and you're choosing to write certain sections with a lot of material it's totally an an aesthetic choice yeah and sometimes it's an aesthetic choice you make quickly like you know some of the arrangers uh, for when they were doing stuff for radio and tv and you only had you know 12 hours to write a cue uh, or even just an hour to write a cue maybe you know it's like well what's going to be ominous oh upper strings tremolo done ding is that mega creative no does it absolutely work yes does it you know you don't the the time that you have to write it is also a parameter sure and so um you know i don't think for either of us we were particularly pressed on time for those charts that we did so it was good for us to go through the motions of deciding we're gonna leave this open Mm -hmm. but sometimes when you only have a couple hours to do an arrangement leaving it open is a great thing because then you can make sure to spend you know use your ammunition so to speak wisely and uh, let your bullets count where they where you where you use them so you can uh, make those sections that you really invest in pop absolutely absolutely but then on the flip side and and we were kind of talking about this before we started recording this episode there are situations where writing a ton of material and just like what we would think of as overwriting is sometimes actually what you need to do yes like what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's uh, you're putting me on the spot. Well, okay. Well, uh, oh, I I just thought of something. Go ahead. But, but, but if you got it, go ahead. Well, okay. Like, let's say that you're writing music that's supposed to portray like some kind of frenetic energy or or something very right. Like, let's right. That's exactly what I was going to well, say. Well, yeah. like certain sections of Rhapsody in Blue, for example are very mm-hmm. like frantic and lots of activity and you know it's like these textures are very dense and and that's an example of where writing a lot of material is actually not overwriting if you're writing for a soloist like uh, and virtuos- virtuosic soloists you know i don't think anyone's going to complain yeah rhapsody in blue or uh you know a concerto you know oh he had to write all those notes at the end really well, yeah, it's really impressive. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? But yeah, also thinking about like battle sequences in movies sure. or or even a Bob Brookmeyer chart, you know? He he would often leave he would he would make sure that he he wrote a ton of backgrounds for his soloists yep. a lot of the times, you know? And they would get in the way and he wanted that struggle uh, the way I perceive it anyways sure. is that he desired that struggle between the soloist and the orchestra. So he it was forcing the soloist to get into either a higher range or a higher density moment, you know, a uh, something that would create tension, which uh, he loved, uh, you know, loved tension, uh, not just harmonic or melodic tension, but then tension between instruments and and between the improviser and the orchestra and the and the band. So it's uh, it's definitely an aesthetic. Yeah, absolutely. Well. You mentioned like virtuosic soloists. Well, sometimes you write pieces that are going to feature virtuosic bands, like uh, right. You know, right. I mean, like the the 
GRP All Star Big Band was one example where, you know, oh gosh, those yeah. those charts were sort of written to feature the virtuosity of the musicians, and so mm-hmm. you have like Micah Benny's Olio arrangement, which is just all over. Oh man, I mean, it's just love that chart. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a beautiful arrangement, and it's just it's very like active, and there's a lot of really difficult lines and counterpoint going on, and and it's some some of the parts are very dense and very. Um, full of lots of different parts going on all at once. But it sounds great because it's it's designed to sound that way. It's designed to, to have that effect. Absolutely. Yeah. Tons of reharm, tons of counterlines, lots of a very busy sax solely, and it feel but it still feels amazing. Yeah. You know, it, it come the intention and the energy is is all right there. And you feel it. You feel it if you're if you're if you're into it, you know? Absolutely. So there's really a lot to be said about overwriting, underwriting, and the reality is, as as we often say on this podcast, it has a lot to do with the performers you're writing for, the musical intention that you have, and, and not to mention the, the time that you have to write the work that you're working on. And so... I think the key is always is to always be aware of what the music sounds like and and what what the different ways it could be sounding like with different performers and to make sure you're serving the intention of the music but also making sure that the client you're writing for if you have one is happy and so uh so you can always do a, a as good a job as you possibly can to to get the call back or if you're writing for yourself then to to really get in touch with the emotion and the the effect that you want to have on the listener and to have an, a, a good economy of sound, but also to make sure that you're capturing what you want to capture. Beautifully, uh, beautifully said, Drew. That's, that's a very eloquent way of, of uh, wrapping things up. Well, I only worked on that speech for, you know, two hours. So I think it was time well put in. I don't think it was over. Do you think it was overwritten or underwritten? You know, I don't know. I think it was just right. <laughs> oh man first time for everything yeah cool there (laughs) that was sick that'll work Uh, ah well <laughs> Sometimes it comes to you. The title of this segment is What's in Your Listening Rotation? Cool. What's in your listening rotation, Aaron? Drew, I have been listening to a lot of Wolfpack lately. Oh my. And I have to say, they are a great band. Mega funky. Check them out if you haven't. Wolfpack, that's V U L F P E C K. And I just I've I got into them a little bit a few days ago. I started I mean I've I've checked them out before, but uh for some reason I started getting a little deeper into their their music and I just love their aesthetic. Like they're so funky and they uh I mean I think it kind of has a lot actually to do with the discussion we just wrapped up because they're so comfortable doing just a simple groove and just like just going to town on it, but not playing too much. Like when I think of Wolfpack, I just I feel like they hit these super catchy and addictive grooves, and you never feel like they're just like shredding on technique to impress you. Like they're just 
to me, they're a band that's all about having fun. It's really fun music. It's really virtuosic playing, and it's really it's it's a virtuosic ensemble as well as individual playing. You know, they they know how to really play a groove with each other. It's really awesome. Yeah. And uh, I was listening to an interview with one of the guys, and and the, he was saying that their whole concept is like getting back to the old recordings from the mid twentieth uh, century, which you know they had these legendary rhythm sections like the Motown guys and the Stax records, and you know, and I just feel like that's in in today's era where we're always overdubbing and mm. multi-tracking and and recording to a click track. It's refreshing to hear a band that just, I mean, they're just all in one room together, uh, playing the entire arrangement in one take. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Really, really, really fun band to listen to, man. Yeah, I'm hoping to go see them here in Minneapolis in a couple weeks. Uh, They're going to be here May 1st and 2nd, so I'm pretty psyched. Oh my gosh, you have to go see them. That's awesome. Totally. Track highlights, in my opinion, uh, check out Funky Duck by that band, and... uh, <laughs> it's it's a pretty fun song. Check out Back Pocket, uh, sixteen twelve, and it gets funkier. Those are some of my favorites of theirs. So, Drew, uh, that that's kind of what's been in my listening rotation. What what about you? Well, be be honest. Uh, I the last two months I've been in China, so I honestly haven't taken much time to listen to anything else other than Chinese opera. And so if you are interested at all in this genre of music, I recommend starting out with Beijing opera, Peking opera. I forget how much I said before, but it's, uh, for the most part, monophonic, heterophonic music. And it's uh, usually, it's very much a through-composed music, and it has a very different aesthetic than, the, than a lot of Western music, because there's no harmony there's no clear form. The form is, you know, you ask them, what's, what's the form of this piece? Well, they would say that the form starts where the piece starts and it ends where the piece ends. <laughs> <laughs> no joke. That's wow. what they say. That's, that's the form of the piece. And uh, it, it, it can work like aria, like uh, West, uh, Italian arias in that you can use the same form and then put different lyrics in there. Hmm. Um, Particularly if it's a shorter form, a shorter piece, you know, a two-minute, three-minute piece, they can use different, different lyrics, different poems. All the all the lyrics and stories are ancient Chinese poems, and uh, so if you go in with a really a different listening experience, and so some of the other operas that I've been listening to are Qin Chang, uh, spelled Q I N Q I A N G, Qin Chang Opera, which comes from the the city of Xi'an, and it's one of the older forms of operas, kind of a forefather of Beijing opera and many other kinds of operas. Some people date it as early as 600 or to 800 years ago. Um, some of the songs are still being performed that are a similar way to the, they were, how they were performed back then, which is truly remarkable. Yeah. If you think about jazz music, which is barely 100 years old. Um, yeah. You know, so... And the vocal style in Chin Chang can be very intense, sometimes even screaming at times. Wow. Um, there's, there's no alto or bass roles in Chinese opera, for the most part. It is all a soprano and tenor voice type music. And uh, sometimes the tenors are 
literally screaming. Wow. I, I, I don't know how they preserve their vocal cords, honestly, sometimes. And then some the other two forms of opera that I was able to check out are Wu opera, also called Wu Ju opera. Most Chinese operas uh, have a, uh, the ensemble consists of the vocalist, of course, and then a, a lead instrument, which is almost always a, uh, a fiddle, uh, which they call Hu. So you have your Ban Hu, Jing Hu, Ar Hu, uh, and those are the main primary accompanying instruments with several others like pipa, xiaxian, yuexin, which are all basically, you know, the Chinese hammered dulcimer, Chinese lutes, Chinese guitars, Chinese flutes, like called the ditze, and then Chinese percussion, which is an essential instrument to the Chinese opera. So, the, But the, what makes wu opera really sweet sounding is that the ditze, the flute, is the primary lead instrument. Hmm. It's really a beautiful sound. It's a it's a bamboo flute, but there's a small reed, a, a small piece of vibrating. Sometimes it's plastic, other times it's it's a membrane of some sorts, and it gives the sound huh. a really a uh, vocal and human quality, which is really beautiful. The other, the last kind of opera that I checked out is called the Canton Opera, which of course is Cantonese opera, which is from South China. This was probably my favorite kind of opera because unlike the other operas where the the story and the lyrics came first and the music and the costumes and the instrumentation and everything followed the stories, in Canton tradition, the the melodies actually came first. So the, the Canton arias are extremely beautiful and the melodies are more what a Western listener would be used to, you know, bit more typical phrasing and um, a more bel canto singing style. And they were just gorgeous, some gorgeous melodies. That's honestly what's been on my rotation. I'm looking back to getting to some jazz, some uh, Lee Konitz and Warren Marsh, because I, I those are some of my favorite cuts. But that's what that's what I want to kind of get back into and start practicing, and, and, and particularly as a saxophonist, because that's kind of a... It's not as checked out, not as the music isn't as listened to as much as other types. And so I want to start absorbing that more into my vocabulary. Yeah, wow. So that's true. You could uh you could write a dissertation on, on uh that all that stuff you just talked about. You're learned a lot in the last couple of months. Oh my gosh. I you know, I I was very I'm very happy to share it and I really have learned a whole lot. And this and it hasn't even been that really much of a classical education. It's more just been my observation and through just listening and hearing uh, the performers talk about their music, which is a great mm. way to learn. It's not particularly scholarly, but it's it's a it, for me it's a really great way to learn, and I need to document what I've learned and and share it in some way. <laughs> wow. Well, that about wraps things up for the day. And, you know, we're looking forward to the future here. We have a couple of really exciting interviews lined up. I, w- I won't reveal the uh, the names quite yet because I want you to uh, have a little anticipation. Oh, my. Don't tell the people. Don't tell the people. <laughs> I will not. But be uh, checking those out. Be sure to subscribe on mm-hmm. iTunes or on whatever app you use for podcasts. I personally... Since I have an Android phone, I actually use an app called CastBox, uh, which is just another podcast distribution app. Like us on Facebook and check out little clips there. Absolutely. Email us at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. 
with your questions and topics that you want us to talk about. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you tune in next time. Seacrest out. Seacrest. <laughs> Love it. <laughs>